you, worship team. Thank you, Spencer, for leading us. Can you give us a moment to just pray? Um, my name's Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. Our third through fifth grade class is dismissed. And uh, I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're continuing our series. We're in week 3 of this series called Under the Sun. You guys enjoying this series so far? Uh, you know, you enjoy it kind of like a punch in the face, right? I mean, it's been a little intense, but it's been great to have conversations with so many of you uh, who are talking about the hevel that they're dealing with all week long. Uh, and so excited to, to do what we do every week, just open God's word, let God's word speak to us. And uh, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 15. Let's read it. Uh, you follow along as I read it out loud. And, um, and then we'll dive in. Maybe the most popular or well-known passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pause before God's word and ask him to use it to speak into our lives. Lord, thank you for your word. We are grateful for the wisdom that it gives us as we address the times and seasons of our lives. And Lord, today, as we think about these words, we ask that you, O oh Lord, would speak to us. Lord, just as you spoke through these words in time past, we ask that your Holy Spirit might take them and speak into our lives in ways that would shape us, reorient us to what you're doing in our times and seasons. In Jesus' name. Amen. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. 
That's his famous quote from Mere Christianity, and it's meant to remind us that we are disoriented around our desires, and we need to adjust ourselves to consider that this endless pursuit of satisfaction that we have seen in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. If you've been with us, and even if you haven't, the writer, the teacher of Ecclesiastes has been looking everywhere and in everything for what can bring enduring, unending satisfaction and joy. And he has found nothing under the sun. But he can't stop looking. He, he's got this desire, this longing, this thing that he wants satisfied, this sense of eternity. And, uh, and C.S. Lewis says that that is part of the realization that we long for something transcendent. We long to know God. Now the heart of this passage that we just read is a, maybe a familiar one to you in some way. The heart of the passage is in this poem about time that the birds turned into a song in 1965. I thought maybe we could just loosen up a little bit. I need some crowd participation. Um, I'm gonna, you guys are going to answer my question, all right? You're going to fill in the blank when I point to you, all right? To everything turn. See, you guys already know the song, right? Well, you know, I, I thought about that song this week, and I was like, I, I know it's from the poem, but I did not realize that it is almost entirely just the poem. What a ripoff, right? I mean, total plagiarism. The only thing they added was turn, turn, turn. It's interesting because the poem itself and the song at the time were intended to say to people, times change things shift new seasons come and you need to turn turn in fact sometimes you're in a season where you want the page to turn to turn and this is something that really captures a big thing about life and it points us to this key idea in the whole text that times do change. And in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, we see an invitation here. And the main idea is this passage is intended to reorient ourselves to God's work in His time as superior to our toil. And in the background of this passage... The, the writer, the teacher, has been toiling. And by that he means he's been putting all this effort into figuring out what can really endure. And, and that's really about figuring out how to center things around him and how he can make it work to his advantage and find what will really satisfy. And this passage says, actually, we need to be reoriented around what God is doing in our times and seasons rather than what we want to find and search out. And so the whole passage... And the main thing really for you today is to think, are there ways in which God wants to reorient the way that you think about your life and your time and your season? It's an invitation to consider that. We see this as the teacher is going to progress us through thinking about times and seasons in this particular passage. And he does it in three different sections that I'm going to point out to you. I'm going to point those sections out and we're going to see how, what is he trying to get us to see and to understand about times and seasons. Then after he takes us through those three sort of progressions, he's going to make two applications about what we should do with that. And that's what we're going to do for our sermon. Three progressions, two applications, and then we'll be done. 
And so that's what we want to look at as the, the author of this book takes us through it. Let's look at what he teaches us about times and seasons first in three sections. The first one is going to be on the screen for you as we look at this passage. It sticks out right in the beginning. It's verse number one, which is kind of the main thesis of the whole thing, where he shows us that under heaven there are varied times and seasons. The thesis statement in verse one shifts our focus to the big picture. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, if you're the type of person that makes notes in your Bible, I would encourage you just to underline the phrase under heaven. Before we jump into the poetic section in verse 2 and think about that, let's consider closely what this verse does to set us up to see what we're supposed to see. You see, all the way through in the first two chapters, then there's been a repeated phrase under the, what is it? Under the sun, that's the name of the series, right? Because it happens, we see that, and we're going to see it more in the future. But do you notice we have a different phrase here where he says, under heaven. Anytime you're you know, studying the Bible and there's a repeated phrase, and then there's a different phrase, you should slow down and think, what's happening? What is the writer doing here? So we've been looking under the sun for answers about what really matters and what endures and what the meaning of everything is, and what can give our whole heart, what we can give our whole heart and strength to. And this perspective of under the sun is clearly a way of putting us inside a thought experiment where we try to understand the world from our own wisdom, vantage point, and perspective. But now here in verse 1, as the teacher has exhausted every category in the first two chapters and concluded that under the sun... We can't find what is enduring, an enduring gain for our toil. What does he do? He now shifts upward to talk of the times and seasons that are under heaven. It's a purposeful perspective shift where for the first time we're getting a moment or a section in the book of divine insights. He's saying, let's go up and zoom out and think about the times and seasons under heaven. The big picture. If we were to zoom out, he is saying, with the scope of time widening to stretch across many generations, we would see that life is full of seasons and times for everything. And those same seasons and times just kind of keep coming up. They're a part of just the flow of time. Just like in the first chapter, we had rain that flowed with the rivers into the seas and evaporated back into the skies and flowed into the rivers back in the seas. Here we have times and seasons that just keep interchanging. And so he, he says, if we zoom out and think about it, under heaven there are these varied times and seasons. Maybe we don't experience them all or aren't experiencing them all in any given moment, but they are there. We might not experience them all in our own lifetime, but in some sense, these are the seasons. So under heaven, there are varied times and seasons. The second thing he does then is he moves us in, not Lord over them. The poem in verses 2 through 9 is, is really powerful. It's, it's, it's also incredibly interesting. It reinforces this idea about the varied times and seasons and pushes some things forward by setting forth couplets of offsetting seasons that are familiar to all of us. Life experiences, periods of time, 
Notice if you look at the poem, if you were to kind of pay attention to it, there are 14 lines in all in this poem. The word time is used 28 times total, once in each of the sides of the couplet. As I said, it was made popular in 1965 by the birds, uh, but they sang word for word this set of couplets. Every line has a couple of this, like, you know, two parts to a poem. This line, these two things go together to make one kind of unit in the poem, and that's what's happening in this piece of poetry. It's a couplet where the second time offsets the first one. In a sense, if you added them up, you would get no gain. You would get just offsetting seasons that life is made up, made up of. So under the sun, they just add up to no gain. But these are the seasons that we experience, he says, under heaven. And he wants to, and the poem is meant to do some things. He's kind of taking us through them because we can identify. You maybe have experienced some of these seasons in offsetting ways yourself. Seasons of rejoicing and seasons of sorrow. Seasons of dancing and seasons of mourning. And you may be, you may be looking right now and saying, I find myself in one of these seasons. So, how is this poem used, and what is it supposed to communicate to us? Well, the poem is used, first of all, to connect with us around real experiences that everyone has. It's also trying to capture the entire scope of human life, as if to say, yeah, these are the times and seasons that we find ourselves in. Now, the other thing worth noting as we think about what we've been talking about so far in the book of Ecclesiastes is that if you take all these seasons, as I mentioned a moment ago, together, Best as we can tell, from our perspective, under the sun, there's no gain. There's just a season where we mourn, a season we rejoice, another season of sorrow, another season of dancing. But they just keep coming up. And one season that's positive is robbed by the next season. It's not. And that's kind of what's going on in the in the poem, it reinforces this perspective that it's really hard for us to figure out how all these seasons fit together to mean anything. That's what it's like to experience time, isn't it? Sometimes just to experience the confusion of different offsetting seasons and wonder, what am I supposed to do with this? Now, here's where I want to help you a little bit with thinking about this passage. We need to be careful not to make in some manner when we read this poem what's often uh, referred to as the is-ought fallacy. The is-ought fallacy just says, you know, we look at what is real in life or what is the experience in a given situation and we sort of transition to saying that's just how it ought to be. And the is-ought fallacy does, it would look at this and say, as we read this poem, it, it means that every season ought to be this way, or we ought to progress through these seasons, or that, that they're all appropriate, or we should even engage in bringing them about, or feel free to lean in and, and participate in them. And it's like, it's a, it's a fallacy to think that, because all that's happening, the teacher isn't doing that. Uh, it's meant to do, it's not saying go do these seasons or make various ones happen or anything like that. It's not telling us to do anything. It's just describing what is. These seasons roll on under heaven. The teacher is doing something different. He's simply telling us what is. This is what life is like. It's a set of seasons that we find thrust upon us. 
that we are here trying to make some sort of sense and meaning out of. That's, that's all he's doing as he brings this poem. He, he wants us to feel the marching on of these seasons as though we're subject to them and we don't particularly know always what to do with them. If you live long enough, life is going to thrust moments and seasons upon you with all the possibilities found here in the poem in some manner. You follow me? This is what's going on. And what are we to do with that? You know, it just kind of begs the question, like, what are we to make of an experience where we have all of these kind of seasons to reckon with? What's the gain in that? What's the point over which we have very little control? We're subject to the seasons more than we are in control of them. That's what the writer wants us to see. That's what he's helping us kind of own. Let me illustrate this idea in two ways that connect with me and hopefully will connect with you. Because we live in a world that says, go seize your own day, your own season, your opportunity. But the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, these seasons are coming for you. <laughs> They're coming for you. They're a part of normal, regular human experience. And you're going to have to figure out what to make of it, what to do with it, and ask, how do I respond? Well, we experience this. You know, I was thinking... One example of this is, uh, is like the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a season that was thrust on us over which most of us had little to no control. Regardless of what you thought about the various ways that people or governments across the globe dealt with the reality of this thing, regardless of your perspective on the various details, none of us could ignore it. We just couldn't ignore the dynamics it was creating in our life, the new things we were having to reckon with, the questions we had about how we were to respond or what we should do. And, and, and all of us were forced to reckon with the season. If you came into that season with a certain set of plans about what you were going to accomplish, those things probably got mixed up pretty good. Paused, shifted, some things put away, never to be picked up again. And we were participants in a season that we didn't choose that's like that's the way life is isn't it then I think similarly I think of my grandmother's young life in a tranquil Richfield Pennsylvania where there's with her 10 siblings growing up in a time prior to World War II through through things well beyond their control as a family their futures were interrupted. Two brothers would eventually go off to the war and her brother Elwood would never return. She once shared her story with me and told me that her father was never the same after Elwood, Elwood died. It was a season that intruded into their life that marked them forever, that changed them, that interrupted something deep that they were cultivating. So as much as people like to talk about what they're going to do, about seizing our own destiny, writing our own story, we're all subject to greater times and seasons. This is what the writer's doing. He's, he's shrinking us. <laughs> we're subject to times and seasons that we don't choose. We're subject to experiences that we didn't sign up for. And the bigger picture shapes our lives and our search for what is really enduring and significant. 
every day. So as verse 9 begins, as he thinks about that poem, he asks the question then that we've been asking all along, what gain then has the worker from his toil? Now just to remind you, he's not saying what gain do we have in going to a job. He's not, he's not living in sort of our constructed 21st century America. He's not saying what, gain, what point does your job have. He's saying us as workers in this field of life who are trying to interact with it and harness it and, and cultivate it and decide what to do with it, that's our toil, the effort that we put in. What gain do we have? What gain can we really see? If, if seasons are thrust upon us, what can I count on tomorrow? <laughs> what can I build on? What can I harness from this? Or am I just subject to these times and seasons? Well, the answer is, if we are counting on our ability to secure what matters and capture what endures, we have little to no guarantee, the writer is showing us, that it's going to go well. We are small under the scope of heaven. That's what he wants us to see. Times and seasons thrust upon us that we're subject to and not lord over. And once that is clear, the teacher reorients our perspective based on what is true about what God is doing then as we move into verses 11 and 12. So really he's been setting us up to show us something in verses 11 and 12 that I want to show, or 10 and 11, that I want to show you. Here is the first positive news and statement that this book gives. If you've been with us for two and a half weeks now, uh, two and a half sermons in, and you've been like, man, this is just nothing but breaking us down, telling us to stop pursuing the things that we're pursuing, or at least hold them much more loosely. It's been nothing but breaking us down, discouraging, despairing. Well, here's the first time he says something positive. And I want to show it to you. But he shows it to us this way in verses 10 and 11. In our third point, third progression. We long for a redemptive story, but God's hand often eludes us. Now that's not the good news. I'm going to show you the good news. But that's, that's what he's going to show us in verse 10 and 11. We long to, to, to discern, to see this good redeeming work of God. This, this story of hope. But how he's doing it in a, any given moment in our life is like hevel. That Hebrew word we've been looking at for vanity, it's elusive. We, we just can't quite get our hands on it. Look what he says in verse 10. In verse 10, as he, as he picks up after the poem and the question, he says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've, I've seen what God tasked us with. Here's what he says. Here's the first positive thing. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, positive news, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, negative, so that he can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So, so the good news is, God is doing something. Under heaven, all these times and seasons, aren't, they don't just add up to no gain. That, that God, in times and seasons, is actually making everything beautiful. He makes all things beautiful in His time, He says. 
God has, let's just think about these three phrases. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He, he knows, listen, the writer, the teacher knows enough about life in the world to acknowledge that God does beautiful things with the times and seasons and has a redemptive and good purpose. Maybe he's reflecting back on thinking about the story of Joseph, how Joseph's life was full of times and seasons, some where he was favored by his father and enjoying that favor, others where he found himself in prison and forgotten, and then others where he was exalted to the second in Egypt, and others where he was frustrated because his brothers weren't owning up to their sin, and eventually he would see and break through and understand that God had done all of these times and seasons so that he could rescue his people safely from famine and guarantee he could keep his promise to send the Messiah through them. God does beautiful work. But it's really hard in certain seasons to see what it really amounts to in that season. But, but his point here is God does that kind of work. That's what a redeeming God does. That's what our God does. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And so the writer says he loves the stories that God weaves, the way he redeems his ability to bring beauty from ashes, to bring hope where, where there was a season of darkness. That is what God does. He makes things beautiful. And the writer knows that there's this beauty to life that gives us even a glimpse of, uh, of this trace of God's hand and what he's doing. And I think deep down, not only does the writer know it, we know it too. Regardless of where you're at spiritually as you come in, there's a beauty to life that we just keep chasing. And the reason, he says, is in the second phrase. The reason that's the case, and we can even think about this, is because God has put eternity in our hearts. Now, this little phrase can sound a little bit confusing, so I want to help you try to understand it. Here's a second amazing thing that, that points to our significance among all creation. The significance of being a human being is that we were created as people who bear the image of God. And, and, and here, bearing God's image means that deep down in our hearts, we have this ability to to think in terms of the big picture of times and seasons and, and, and understand the shape of God's story, the shape of what God's doing. We have the ability to imagine how different times and seasons could give way to something beautiful, and we might just see that thing that God promised that he would do. We might just experience it, and we can take all the times and seasons, and we can gather them up in our heads. Even in your life, you do this. You, you look to do this eternal thing. You're not caught just in this moment. You look back on your life, and you go from beginning to end. What's my story? Have you ever thought how remarkable it is that we can even ask that? What he says is that's part of our makeup. Every person's been created with this ability and this longing to understand this. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is built on the fact that you are searching for meaning. You're searching for meaning in the times and seasons. Whether you're a Christian here today or you're not sure what to make of faith yet, you're, you're trying to figure out what this life means. Sometimes people draw simple conclusions so they can stop wrestling with those big questions and move on with other things that can distract them. But deep down, life breaks in with its seasons to remind us, this has all got to be a part of something, right? Maybe that's questions you're thinking about. Well, God made you that way. God created against everything else in creation. 
you and I think about times and seasons. And what is this all about? God has made it, us that way. But did you notice how as he's given us this encouragement, God makes beautiful things, we can begin to kind of trace it out. We can, we can look for that as part of that longing is God-given. This desire to know and understand and find what endures is made. It's like down deep in us. That's really, that's exciting to know it's purposed by God. Because God completes things that have good purposes. But then he says, yet, he's given it to us in a way that we can't see the end from the beginning. I mean, kind of pull the, do you feel the rug pull out there? As I'm reading it right away, I just feel like, okay, this is great. And then it's like, oh. So what you're saying is that, that God is doing this beautiful thing in the big picture. That I've been given a heart to be able to see it. That God has put things deep in me to look for it, to put the pieces together. But that in our actual experience of times and seasons, I can never quite get my hands on it in any given season. I can't make out all that God is doing from beginning to end. I can see the echoes. I can hear his word. I can do all those things about what may be coming. But you know, when I get right here, and let's just be honest, when I get right here in this season, I'm sort of like, God, where are you at? What are you doing? How does this fit? What am I supposed to make out of this? Because I still have that longing to put all the pieces together. But you notice he says that, that this is God's doing. <laughs> that God has made us unable to put all the pieces together on our own. And it, and it very well could be, we don't know all the answers to those questions, but it very well could be we're just not, simply not capable of seeing it all. And so we, we see here this really, really important idea being played out. And when taken together, this perspective says that we need to be sure to do what Martin Luther King Jr. said when he said we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. This is kind of the heart of what this is. If this is true, we, we've got to accept that there are seasons of sorrow we're going to walk through and it's going to be a disappointment, but we never lose infinite hope because God makes beautiful things in his time. He's still working and we're going to find out what God does. He always makes sure endures. And so this is what he wants us to understand about times and seasons. We're subject to them. They're Lord. They're above us in many ways, but they're under God's purpose and control. And so we're living in that kind of story. If you haven't thought of your life inside of that kind of set of truths, it's really important you begin to reorient your life around just thinking about what do I want? What do I need? What do I want to make of this life? And start thinking, what is God doing and how do I get in on it? How do I participate in God's work, which is the enduring work? And so, we need to recognize that we're not fully capable of understanding what God is doing. But let's not to fail to miss the good news that the writer has reminded us of. All these seasons and times are a stage on which God is working and doing something glorious, redemptive, and beautiful. So with these kind of ideas in places, he's, he's taught us about times and seasons. It brings up the question, so what does he want us to do with that? <laughs> What does he want us to do with that? And interestingly, this passage, unlike most passages I preach, this one already has two applications to what God is doing to make all things beautiful in his time. We're going to do two things. The first one is this. Don't overthink present joys and opportunities. Don't overthink present joys and opportunities. Accept your limits. 
embrace the fact that we cannot see the end from the beginning. And so we don't have to live in constant fear uh, of trying to strategize all the time to make sure we're getting the best. Make sure we're doing the best. That doesn't mean we turn our minds off and turn our hearts off and wrestling with the decisions we make. It doesn't mean that. But it also means that we don't give way to the, the, the sort of debilitating and crippling fear that we got to figure it out before we act. we got to figure it out before we can rejoice. He says, be joyful and do good. <laughs> don't overthink it. Be joyful and do good. We can recognize the applications in this passage and all through actually out the book of Ecclesiastes from the author because he tips us off with a word that he uses exclusively to point us to reliable conclusions. All throughout he's been exploring things, but when he uses the phrase that he uses here in, in verse 12, I perceived that there's nothing better. When he uses that phrase about perceiving, he's actually, he's actually talking about solid, even if they're temporary, but solid, wise conclusions from everything he's been saying. And here, he's got one for us. That solid, wise conclusion is carried along here in verse 12. So the way he says it, just to show where I got my summary from, there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil this is God's gift to man. So what he's saying, in light of all these seasons, as they come and go, we recognize there are many moments where we can simply rejoice in God's good gifts. We also don't have to overthink whether we're always doing the greatest good. We can just look around and do good. Like, you know, the good that God has placed for you to do in any given season, in the place that you live, in the things you do. Like, sometimes we overthink, like, just doing good to our neighbor or doing good to those in need. And it's like, is it the best way? Is all the things that we could get all wrapped up all the time in the strategic, in this sort of eternal move that we just don't go about doing good? So really what he's trying to do is say, don't overthink these present joys and these present opportunities be joyful and do good so that's kind of the simple version of it but it does go a little deeper than that it's a simple conclusion in the context really what he's saying is since we have little we can guarantee we're to receive the joyful moments as a gift from God they're ours to have we're also not to become so consumed with the seasons that may come or trying to totally figure out everything about the future that we fail to just put our hands to doing what we know is good. I've thought about this passage a lot. Because what he's saying is right now, if you have the opportunity to rejoice, to take joy in the work of your hands, to receive and experience the blessing of gifts from God in this season, take them. You don't know what the next season is. And actually, I thought about the fact that part of God's gift to us is that we don't understand always the next seasons. You know, most of you know, if you're, if you're new here, you know, in January we lost uh, our founding pastor, my best friend, and uh, it was just, you know, crippling for a lot of us who've been a part of this for a, a long time. And, uh, and, you know, I was reflecting on this passage and that experience and I've known, I just, as soon as that happened, I knew this was a season that we were just going to have to, we are going to have to figure out how to embrace it, how to walk through it. And, and I've thought about 2022 
the year before all of that, some like really joyful times that God delivered as gifts into our lives personally. And I thought, you know, if, if I knew what was coming in 2023, I'm not sure I could have enjoyed any of them. Like my life certainly personally changed like day to day so significantly that it's been a total reorientation to just figure out how to do my portion of God's work and my portion of life without a friend that, that that's that close. But, but you know, I think if I'd have known that was coming in 2022, I'd hardly been able to find any joy, any way to rejoice. It'd been crippling because I can't bear the weight of that. I'm just not, you know, I'm just not quite built for that. You know, if we take what the writer's been saying, you know, like, seriously, we all have seasons coming. <laughs> like, every one of us is going to die. Every one of us is going to lose those loved ones that have been closest to us. Every one of us is going to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. And you know, if you think about that, and you bear the weight of it too much, how in the world are we going to enjoy any of the moments that God has given to us as gifts? How are we going to go about doing good? I'm just going to sit here thinking, is there any way I can avoid all that? The answer is no. And sometimes we can become so crippled about by what's to come that we can't receive the good gifts that God is giving. And the writer is saying, you're subject to these times and seasons. They're happening. You better reckon with it. And you better figure out where you can find real security. But when you do, it gives you freedom. Freedom to sit in the season you're in if it's a good one and say, God, thank you for this gift. I'm just going to rejoice in it for now. And it gives it a sort of significance. It also gives you the ability to receive difficult seasons knowing that it's very likely that season isn't going to feel the same forever. It's not going to always last the same way forever. You're going to learn to carry it. But one of the things I've learned about grief is something you don't go around, you don't work over it, you don't skip it. You simply go through it. Learn to embrace it and carry it forward into your future. Like, I don't know what season you're in, but, but see, sometimes our desire to know and understand is a foolish desire to be God when we're not. And God protects us by saying, listen, trust me. <laughs> I make beautiful things, but right now in the times and seasons, you're going to have to have faith. So that's the first application. Don't overthink present joys and opportunities. Be joyful. Do what's good. Find pleasure in, in, in good work and contributing to things that make a difference in people's lives and the, the kind of things that are godly and in line with his heart because you just don't know what's coming. So that's application number one. Application number two, don't forget that God is doing an enduring work. So, so if we move to verses 14, 15, he perceives something else. He says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. And so, so really when he's getting down into this particular section, he's saying, don't forget... God is doing an enduring work. All the way through the book so far, we've been like, what endures, what endures, what endures? And he says right here, whatever God does. Whatever God does, endures. 
That passage is meant to humble us, but not to make us miserable. It's meant to place us before a big God over the times and seasons, a God who rules and reigns over them, and let us know that God is doing the only work that will endure. We don't think of God as one who's working, but Jesus said, my father is working all the time. He said that God has plans and purposes for this world that are totally separate from whether you like those plans and purposes, whether you embrace those plans and purposes, whether you want to acknowledge those plans and purposes. God does what endures. And all the things that you'll attempt to do, apart from embracing what God does, are simply not going to endure. And, and so he's here, he's saying, he, he's showing that nobody can add to what God's going to do and nobody can take it away, in a sense. Like God is so other and powerful and transcendent and God is enduring and we are not, that there's nothing you can add or take away. God does enduring work. Now that would be bad news if we didn't think that God was a redeemer. See, this is the thing, it would be bad news if we thought that everything God did was contrary to what is good for us. But see, the Bible tells us that, that God's work is God acts as a redeemer to reclaim what has been lost through sin. That what God wants to do in his work is bring you back into it. He wants to release you from your endless toil after things that won't endure as your ultimate prize and bring you back into a place of communion with him where your work, your effort, your toil, your purpose in life is lined up with his and therefore is a part of the things that endure. But he says he's done it this way so that you and I will fear. Well, fear what? Well, the Bible teaches us that we should fear what will be lost if we decide to just take up things on our own in opposition to God. Maybe, maybe you've kind of gotten caught up into the cultural idea that God is whatever you decide to make out of him. That life its purposes are just defined by you. That ultimately you get to decide, you even get to decide what kind of God you want to believe in. I hear people talk like this. Well, that's not the kind of God I believe in. Well, the Bible says there's a God as is, that is, that we must discover, not impose ourselves upon. The very, one of the very first of the Ten Commandments is not to make God in our image. And many, oftentimes, we are so guilty as a culture, certainly, and maybe even in danger as Christians, of deciding to fashion a God in our image, so much so that we won't reckon with the one it is. And Ecclesiastes is here to say, there's a God over those times and seasons, and he's not concerned about your agenda. But he does invite you into his. His is a better one. It's an enduring one. It's a redeeming one. But if you decide to oppose him, you should fear. Because you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to be satisfied, and you're not going to find anything that lasts. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. God is a redeemer. He says here at the end, God seeks what has been driven away. The thing that's been lost, all that hevel that slipped through our fingers, God is seeking out how to take all of his creation and bring it under his good purposes and so the reason we're to fear him is so that we don't have this foolish notion we're going to somehow work contrary to him and be victorious instead we humble ourselves before him submit to him and receive what he wants to do for us in us and through us 
And as we close, I think the most important thing we could think about is this last statement where it says that God seeks what has been driven away. It may seem like an odd thing to say without the context we've been reading, but over and over again, we've been reminded that the fall into sin and its curse have driven away the sense of security, goodness, blessing, and gain that God originally tended, intended for us to experience. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It reminds us that not only have we sinned and forfeited God's good purposes, we've fallen short of experiencing the glory of His love, His redeeming work, His purposes, His kindness and provision. We've lost it and can't get it back through our own effort, our own toil, our own work. What the writer of Ecclesiastes could only see in part during his time, we now actually have an advantage of seeing more fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And in the passing of time, as God continues to work out his story, we see the beautiful purpose of God's promises and his redeeming work. He hasn't stopped working here in Ecclesiastes to redeem and make things beautiful. He's only advanced it further where we can trace it out and see it more clearly God is at work and is seeking to restore what sin has driven away. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 show us that God had a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, to gather up all of these things that we're wondering if they have value into a purpose in Christ. He's made known to us the mystery of his will in the gospel of Jesus according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him. God is gathering up all of those things and Jesus will rule as Lord over all of those things and he will cause to endure what he determines to endure. And we're invited to gather up underneath that. God's plan was to save us from the slavery of sin and empty toil and redeem us into his family. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, when the fullness of time had come, what did God do? He sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, this, this slavery to adoption language is about toil that isn't for us to working in the Father's house and receiving the reward and inheritance of joy. Of what God causes to endure. We see that our entry into his plan is not through our toil. But as a gift. And makes us, makes us his workmanship. Ephesians 2. 8-10. through 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. How do we get saved from this endless cycle? It's the gift of God. We just receive his work. In place of our toil. Verse 9, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now just connect that last thing. If what God does endures forever, then we're invited to become his workmanship, not bring him into ours. Maybe today you just need to realize that for the first time. All the time you've wanted to add some spirituality to your life so that God would help you with your work. And God says, no, I want, I want you to be my work. I want your life to be something I shape. I craft. I commission and send and give purpose to and bring back into a redeeming, gracious relationship with me.
As we go into a time of the Lord's Supper, I want to ask